Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers who enjoy discussing movies and related media. And for this special Blade Runner episode, we are pleased to welcome back to the podcast the excellent filmmaker and documentarian Charles de Lozarica. So welcome back, Charles. Uh, thanks for having me yet again. <laughs> You're almost like one of the family now. You you hardly even need introduction anymore. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, th- this this podcast uh, a little bit different than usual in so much as even though this is obviously um, one of those sort of landmark films that's definitely the sort of thing that uh, that we'd normally talk about um, whereas we normally sort of pick to talk about something that's either very topical in the moment or one of you know a film that we want to cover or by a particular director uh, or indeed something that we've worked or are working on uh, in this case, this has actually been a listener request, apparently. Right, Simon? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, Do uh, we know who? <laughs> <laughs> <Do> we know? <laughs> well, it's one of the listeners from YouTube, so... <laughs> okay, well, it's good to know we've got listeners, <laughs> for one <Yes>. thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always... Uh, you know, we, we we do take requests, why not? Um, you, you know, and it's always good to talk about, uh, you know, films that we enjoyed and films that we'd grown up on. So um, why not Blade Runner? Indeed. Why not? Indeed. Why not? <laughs> so um, I, I guess the, the, the best way to sort of uh, approach this as a sort of jumping off point, because obviously there's so much to talk about here, is um, as we usually do, sort of, what our involvement was you know how we how we came across it and sort of what it means to us and uh i guess the person in the most unique position here for that one is is probably you charles um and you're obviously the guest so do you want to kick things off or would you prefer me and simon warm things up uh whatever you want i mean i can i can kind of talk i guess a bit about you know my first uh, viewing and how my love of the film evolved and, you know, where I kind of ended up with it all. Um, but I remember seeing it opening day, uh, June 25th, 1982 at the man Hollywood theater, which is no longer there. Now it's, I, I believe it's now it's the Ripley's believe it or not, uh, auditorium or whatever it is, like, you know, whatever show they do. Oh my God. I don't believe it. <laughs> I remember, um, my mom actually had to take me and some friends because it was, you know, it's rated R and we were 15 at the time. And, um, but we all went down and, you know, the film was promoted ostensibly as from the director of alien with the star of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you go in expecting some kind of combination of those two movies. And what we saw was very much not a combination of those two movies. And I remember we were just kind of speechless when it was over. I mean, I, one of my friends, you know, as, as people are want to do, they get right in your face the minute the fade out of the film happens. They're like, what'd you think? What'd you think? And I needed, like, time to, to really process it. I mean, I was really kind of confused. I said, I don't know what I think. I need, to, I need to stew on this for a while. So I did. And over the course of that summer, the summer of 82, I, uh, I saw it a few more times in the theater. And each time out, I, I started, like, 
understanding sort of like almost the subliminal language of it, you know, not just the amazing visuals or the kind of noir story or the really immersive soundscape. It was, it was all that, but it was also this weird kind of almost spiritual level uh, the movie was working on that I really was curious about and um, over time became more and more intrigued by. And, um, and, then it was, and then it was like three years later, because, you know, as we all know, Blade Runner bombed in the theaters when it came out. It, came, it opened the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing, another excellent R-rated science fiction film, which also bombed. And um, so three years later, I was living in Barcelona, and I remember someone asking me like, what my favorite movies were. And, I, and I, I think I mentioned, you know, Star Wars and Raiders and things like that. And this this person said, you know what movie I love is Blade Runner. And I that's when I started to realize that it, that the film was starting to live beyond its failure, its box office failure. And that's when I started to realize that it was okay to like that movie because I had a very complicated relationship with it. And um, I loved it, but it felt flawed, but like kind of like a diamond in the rough, you know? And I, and I kind of felt like there's something under the hood of this movie, and I'm not sure what it is. And, and it took me quite a while to like feel comfortable I don't know, kind of exploring my own love of the film, like my the the, the blossoming love of the film I was having, because it, it definitely took some time before I really fell in love with it. And then when I did, it was you know my favorite movie of all time. So um, you know that that was kind of like the early years of my Blade Runner fandom. And then you know, you saw other movies, other TV shows, and music videos start to copy the style, and Blade Runner became a term that you could use in a sentence, like, wow, that was very Blade Runner, you know, or that weather is very Blade Runner, or that city looks like Blade Runner, and people got what you meant, you know. Years pass, I go to USC film school, I start interning at various companies, and one of the companies I interned at was Scott Free, which was Ridley and Tony Scott's production company, and uh, and so, of course, to, to be there with you know, uh, the director of my favorite film was, you know, quite an honor and quite an education. And, uh, and then, you know, I've, I've told this story a million times, but then when I started producing his DVD uh, and home video, you know, extras and supplemental features, I had always wanted to get to Blade Runner. And it took years before we got to it. But when we did, I feel like we really went all out and did a <laughs> uh, you know, robust uh, release on all fronts. And uh, that, that to me was almost like the culmination of that that first day in 1982 when I saw the film and I couldn't articulate why I loved it. And then that box set and the five discs and the documentary and the final cut, all, you know, my contributions to that was the ultimate expression of that original love that I had for the film. In short, that's my story. <laughs> <laughs> and what a story. And uh, I've, I've got the tin next to me as we speak, actually, with the, uh, you know, the five discs and uh you know the, the documentary and all that sort of stuff which uh which i've gone through in in great depth over the years so um so we we, we thank you for doing that indeed <laughs> <laughs> um you, you you've actually made me feel a little bit better actually um sort of describing your you know your your journey with it if you like because um i remember from my perspective uh i didn't see this until it came out on home video um so I, I guess it was two or three years later uh than it was released at the cinema and um i've obviously you know made no 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 bones about the fact that i'm a a massive star wars fan and a massive indiana jones fan and you know love sci-fi and and all of this sort of stuff and um 
obviously you know film noir you know all, all of all of those sort of elements that you mentioned and uh i was really excited to see this um you, you know i thought oh great you know harrison ford in a in a sci-fi po- uh, movie and and i have to say that i found the that the poster was i guess somewhat misleading because the poster had sort of you know Harrison Ford there with this sort of really cool looking sci-fi gun type thing and then this this wonderful cityscape with flying cars and uh y- y- you know all of this sort of all of these sort of sci-fi elements going on and um it kind of made it look almost like it was going to be some sort of you know super cool sci-fi action movie um you, you know with the guy that played han solo and indiana jones in it and <laughs> so when, when i first watched it as a kid um you know i wasn't ready for this sort of uh you know philosophical uh existential uh journey uh you know with all these sort of deep undertones and and, and meanings and and everything and obviously i was massively wowed by the spectacle of it both visually and and like you said in terms of the the soundtrack track and the sound design and all that sort of stuff with it but um you you, you know i i was and obviously i saw the uh what was then the uh the known now as the theatrical cut so you know the version with the uh with the unenthusiastic voiceover by Harrison Ford and and the shining ending and stuff and um you, you know it wasn't really until i guess i don't know whether it was 91 or 92 that they um you know Ridley Scott sort of jumped on the uh the the the, the little sort of phase they had or the the fashion they had of director's cuts at that point um that i first saw it on the big screen and um you know had quite a different experience with it you know watching it with more adult eyes and uh you know a more a slight slightly more evolved brain and um and and you know sort of had a, a much different appreciation uh of the film of, of the deeper meanings of the film um and obviously preferred that cut of the film as well uh you know that kind of made more sense to me and obviously was therefore delighted um you know by the time we 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 move on even further and we get the uh you know you know what they're calling the final cut where it's essentially you know it's like the director's cut but with all the uh all the little mistakes and 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 bits and pieces improved so um and and you know still remains to now uh you know an absolutely fantastic film in my mind so much that i a couple of weeks back actually went to uh experience secret cinema blade runner which was um you know a completely immersive experience uh immersing us in well i was going to say los angeles of the future but obviously it's technically only a year in the future, isn't it? <laughs> I, I have to say, <laughs> I, I just want to say, Keith, that uh, Los Angeles goes to hell in, in, this, in just a spate of a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it's funny, though, you, you, know, you know, you kind of look at the, it's a bit like they were saying about Back to the Future. It's, it's kind of, they, they got sort of 50% of things correct and, and 50% completely wrong <laughs> so in terms of what the future is going to be but um but yeah so uh y- y- you know for me i'm i love it and i love the the fact that we've got the opportunity here now to sort of dig into this and 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 talk about it a bit more but um in terms of background that's how i really sort of came to uh to find the film and uh y- you know i i admit 
as a kid, I was looking for uh, an action sci-fi movie starring Harrison Ford. And it wasn't, as I said, until I was a little bit older that um, that I really got to appreciate the film uh, for, for, for what it was. And, and obviously, you know, Ridley still remains, you know, one of my favourite directors. So uh, all good. Well, what, what about you, Simon? Well, when I was a kid, um, I was massively into sci-fi. I, I'd watch anything that was uh, sci-fi. And um, my mum taped it off TV for me, um, I think when it was shown on ITV, because I remember there being commercial breaks. So I don't know what year that was, but um, I imagine that was probably late 80s, just because how long it takes to go from video to TV. And um, I just remember... I just was I was blown away by it. I mean, I'd really I really got into it the sort of the first time and I I watched that film quite a lot on VHS. It was I remember it was like the third or fourth film I actually bought on VHS. And then of course, as you say, the director's cut came out in the 90s and um I got to see that on the big screen and uh loved it even more. Now that uh, you know, we had the the happy ending taken out and the voiceover because it's always it's one of those things where it's it's kind of like you. When I watch it today, I I know where the voiceover goes. I kind of I, I can remember what he says, what lines they what he says, and um, but I don't miss it. Um, but yet sometimes I feel it, it it did fill in some of the, I guess, uh, backstory to Deckard. But of course, that then just makes him to be a normal guy and not possibly a replicant. So, it you know, it, it kind of, the theatrical cut kind of takes away from, from that kind of mystery. But um, when I started to study uh, film... Uh, when I started doing my course, um, I started buying uh, a lot of, you know, making of books. And uh, one of the first books I actually bought was uh, Future Noir by uh, Paul M. Salmon. And yeah, I have a copy of that right here. <laughs> yes, very good book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually able to buy it when I was over in the States. Uh, that Back in 99. And um, I just... I just loved the story of the making of it. Because I was starting to learn about filmmaking, you, you started to learn that there's this other life the film has, and that's the making of. And you, I, I, when you're younger, when you watch films, you don't realise sort of the effort that goes in and some of the maybe turmoil or you know, some of the, the battles that go on to get these films made. And sometimes those stories are as interesting or more interesting than the actual film itself. So I, I was amazing to see that this film kind of more or less escaped than it was actually kind of made. It's, it's that weird thing where there was so many things against it, yet it still came out and became this classic I do think that the film gods were smiling upon it, even though I imagine everybody who worked at it on the time didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but um, yeah, so you know, I it's a film I I go back to every year and I, I watch, and there's always I, I'm always seeing new things. I mean, I I watched it today, and even today I was sort of noticing, you know, details in the on in the frame that I, I've never seen before, and it's just. It's such a it's, it's a weird thing. It's a it's a rewarding film, you know. It rewards you for coming back and watching it again. I don't think you could ever get the full experience of just watching it once. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, for the longest time on the sort of home video release, um, I you know used to watch this film in in four by three pan and scanned version with uh you know like a mono soundtrack yeah. <laughs> and um obviously it wasn't until i went to see the director's cut that i got to see you know in the full aspect ratio you know on a huge screen with with a proper you know um you know surround mix and all of that sort of stuff and um yeah i mean the attention to detail on that film as as with all of Ridley's films to be fair but you know the attention to detail and the world building is 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 you know absolutely second to none um it it is really rich and and like you said it is one of those films that you know visually you can watch multiple times and keep sort of noticing new things and whatever but also you know absolutely thematically as well you can watch it and you can watch it sort of from different points of view and you know you can you know you can do the uh the whole you know um all the ambiguity if you like around Deckard uh you, you know you can experience the film in different ways and I think it's really great when a uh when, when a movie's able to sort of do that and 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 work on those sort of multi multi-faceted levels um and as you rightly said, I mean that that book and indeed Charles's documentary um, for anyone that's interested in in filmmaking and uh, you know the craft of filmmaking, but also some of the politics of filmmaking as well. Uh, you, you know, would would be wise to uh, to to invest their time in um, in in watching that documentary and and obviously listening to the oh sorry, um, reading the, uh, the 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 book for sure and it's not a plug charles <laughs> it's, <laughs> but, it's, wait, it's, had, it's had a word i missed what you said i said sorry that that wasn't a that wasn't a shameless plug either charles <laughs> for, your, <laughs> for people to go out and, and buy it but uh you know <laughs> shameless so um <laughs> charles I was just wondering, did you have any involvement with a previous documentary about Blade Runner? Uh, it was made for Channel Four with Mark Commode, and I remember it was. I remember it was the first time they actually showed extra footage from the film, which was the uh, Deckard visiting Holden in the hospital scene. Uh, yeah, I, I helped out a little bit on that one. Um, Andrew Abbott, who directed that. Um, and Mark Kermode, uh, you know, both really great, talented guys, obviously. Um, they were in L.A. Uh, shooting interviews for On the Edge of Blade Runner, which was their documentary. Mm. And um, we, you know, we hung out a bit, and grabbed some drinks and talked and whatnot. Um, and they had to leave town, if I remember correctly, because this was back in like 2000, 2001. 
they had to leave town and they didn't get uh, Joanna Cassidy or Joe Turkel. So they asked if I would just pick up those interviews for them. So, you know, they sent over the questions and this is the first time I'd ever conducted interviews. So I was very nervous. And I basically just, you know, literally just read off the sheet of paper that they sent over with not much else. No. Um, but it was great because I got to meet Joanna and I got to meet Joe and Joe Turkel especially was very, very funny, very lively character. And uh, Joanna is just lovely. And I've, you know, seen her several times since and she's great. So, um, you know, that was like the very first nibble for me in the world of documentary and documenting Blade Runner. And it was great to learn from Andrew and Mark and just kind of watched, you know, how they assembled what they did. And, and I think their documentary is excellent and, mm. and certainly a, a completely um, different uh, approach to why Blade Runner is an important film. You know, I think it's more um, intellectual than mine. I think it's more... Um, it's just it's just a bit of more philosophical and, and more uh, more involved in exploring Philip K. Dick's uh, work and, and the origins of Duandre's Dream of Electric Sheep, as well as you know what the film means and how it resonates today, and how um, it captured a very uh, realistic and credible future. You know, so I, I feel like you know in a perfect world that would be a really nice companion piece to Dangerous Days, which is you know, far more nuts and bolts and, you know, stories from the set and production facts and, you know, um, and we, we talked about it. I mean, we talked about trying to include On the Edge of Blade Runner in the, the big, you know, five-disc set and I can't remember why exactly if it was a rights issue or just we ran out of space because we had so much stuff, but um, I, I love their documentary. I think, uh, you know, they always do a great job. Yeah, well, I mean, you did include their Alien one on the uh, quadrilogy box set, though, didn't you? Uh, two cuts of it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, if there's if there's room, I'm always up for including everybody. You know, it's not a. I don't feel you know territorial obsessive mm. about it. I'm like, let's give the fans everything we can give them. Yeah. And let them decide. You know, let them kind of go on figure out what interests them. You know, because someone someone who might there might be someone who's not interested in the production of it. They want to get the meaning of it, so that's where you could go to like on the edge of Blade Runner, or someone wants you know the juicy stories from the set, or how people react to certain challenges. Then they can go to my documentary. So it's you know I, I'm all for just telling the story and creating a, a living archive of of what went into a particular film and and what it's resonances you know afterwards especially on older movies mm. yeah yeah no absolutely and and you and you you know you certainly uh you gave us that in spades with the with these sets and of course the other thing that uh that we're really grateful about as well is the fact that um you know all all the versions of the films are included uh as opposed to only been able to get you know the latest version or the latest cut or whatever of the film um you know the fact that they're all there uh, as as a home media collector, um, that's what you want. You literally want to be a completist and have everything um, that exists out there um, on it. And and you know, you know this this does include that. So um, you, you know that that's fantastic, really. Well, it's it's funny because I, I, there were so many people back you know back then. We're talking about over ten years ago, and, and even before that, when we first started trying to work on it um 
where you saw other big special edition releases, especially movies that had multiple versions. And there was always some level of complaining from fans. You know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you include that? And the response from my other producer friends who worked on those projects was, you can't win. You know, someone's always going to complain about something. And then I, that's, you know, if, if, if the phrase existed back then, I would have said, hold my beer. Because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with Blade Runner, we did satisfy like uh, you know nearly everybody because we left no room for dissatisfaction. It's like you, you got every version of the film uh, as restored as best as we could possibly restore it, um, and you know it, it fully you know anamorphic uh, five one Dolby. I mean, it was like we we didn't half-ass any of that stuff, and uh, and even the, the the work print, which was in terrible shape. I mean, even, you know, Warner Brothers was so gracious and generous to let us include that and actually put as much work as we could in trying to salvage it because you know it looked terrible it looked like i'd been dragged behind a truck through gravel um it, it you know we got that on the disc so we have the full kind of like story uh, or history rather of the edits and if you have a particular version you like it's there you know and then on top of that you get you know 47 minutes of deleted scenes you get hours and hours of documentaries and featurettes you get like every TV spot and trailer we could find. We even, we even threw in B-roll from the behind-the-scenes footage, just raw, unedited, you know, yeah. uh, footage. So I really, I do believe you can satisfy, you know, maybe not 100%, but 99.9% if you just give the people what they want. Um, and believe me, sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes for legal reasons you can't include something, or you don't have clearance to use something, or you run out of space, you know, and it's just too cost-prohibitive to include another disc. Um but, you know, the, it was a perfect storm with Blade Runner because we got, I think, pretty much everything. I mean, there, there's always little things that you don't get. Um, but on the whole, that, that first five-disc release in 2007, I thought, you know, pretty much covered all the bases. I mean, certainly all the important ones and then a lot of unimportant, geeky ones, too. So I, I, mm -hmm. I see no downside to that first release. No, no, absolutely. I must admit, in 2007, that Christmas when when this came out i literally it it took me a a few days but i um you know i'm fanatical enough that i actually did literally watch everything on there everything <laughs> and and you know thoroughly enjoyed it was um you, you know informed and entertained and inspired and and you know all of that good stuff as a as a as a you know, as a wannabe filmmaker and a, and a film film fan of, of 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 this type of movie, so um, yeah, you know, and and I just wish that all special editions that came out would be uh would be like this, you know, <laughs> but uh, we 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 try our best, I guess, you know. <laughs> not every not every film um warrants this kind of treatment. I don't want to say it doesn't deserve this kind of treatment, but certainly there are films um that that deserve an in-depth, immersive, um, you know, behind-the-scenes experience. But Blade Runner just had, you know, with the five versions, you know, with all the kind of uh, contentious production history, with all that stuff, I mean, there's just so much material to include. Whereas you could have an equally or even more uh, worthy film where there's just not much story there. It's like they had a good time, they made the movie, it turned out great, you know? <laughs> and that's, you can in a half an hour so it's just um blade runner had just so much meat on the bone in terms of the behind the scenes aspects of it um that it was again just like i said it was a perfect storm of content and opportunity and the timing and just 
everything's kind of magically aligned on that one. And, you know, I've, I've had other projects I've worked on, which have turned out, I think, pretty great and, and that have also been pretty in-depth and immersive. But um, it's going to be really difficult to top. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no... It's like the pinnacle, isn't it? Once you've done that, it's like everything else is, is there's no comparison to it. Well, I mean, again, it's like it depends on the, the subject matter. Um, but I, I, I think that, again, you could you could take something like Star Wars and have a field day with it and, make, mm. you know, a bigger release because there's, there's a lot of history to that as well. But um, just for whatever reason, Blade Runner just was it was just so primed for this kind of treatment because it hadn't really been done before. I mean, uh, Criterion uh, in the early days put out a laser disc, which was, you know, I think it was the first time the film was presented in its original aspect ratio. And it included, um, I believe it had like a trivia section that had some production factoids, but it was almost presented as like, not, not, not a game exactly, but it was, you know, it was just kind of like more of a factoid section. Um, and and not and that was pretty much it, if I recall correctly. So and that was Criterion, who are known for their you know gold standard you know special edition releases. So um, considering that's all they could get away with back then, I think it, it's just it's just amazing alignment of the elements and everything. We uh, we we pulled it off in 2007, many years later. And again, keeping in mind that it it hadn't been done before with Blade Runner, so it was completely all new virgin territory. So is there like a film out there that you would love to do a documentary about? Any any film? I mean, there's there's, there's lots. I mean, the thing is, a lot of them have already been done. You know? So um, it gets to find something that maybe hasn't been done or hasn't been done well. And, um, and I don't know, that's something I feel I don't want to share. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You, d- you don't want that in the public domain. <laughs> yes. But, you know, I mean, look, I, I think that you could still do an amazing Star Wars box set when these first nine movies are done, and you could do a Skywalker saga box set, which could be amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's all kinds. I mean, there's, there's weird films that never got special edition treatment but probably wouldn't um, justify the cost of, like, uh, that kind of... Uh, you know, I don't know, that kind of all, all in special edition box set um, approach. But um, again, it's like I hesitate to go into them. I just, I just, but look, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and if only, you know, the times have changed too. The, the industry has changed. The appetite for this stuff has changed. And uh, it's not what it used to be. And so you have to kind of pick your battles. And if you, if you see an opportunity where the director or the producer's and the studio uh, have a certain level of excitement for something, and you go in and you say, "Great, here's here are my ideas," and they you know they like them, then you're off and running. It's just that 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 opportunity is is kind of few and far between these days. It's not that the studios don't want to do they don't want to put out a good product. They do. It's just they have to look at the bottom line and ask themselves how many people are going to buy this set, and will it justify the cost of you know, doing a director's cut or restoring the film or, 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 you know, traveling around the world and shooting 80 interviews like we did on Blade Runner. It's just like, these are all questions that have to be asked before they start spending money. And that's just the world we live in. I mean, that's, and I, and I totally understand it. That's why I always push for the most, but at some point the studio is well within their right to push back and say, well, you know, we, we appreciate that you want to do this stuff, but 
we honestly we won't make any money back on it if we go that far. And and that's and that nowadays because I've not on projects I've worked on, but I've heard of sales numbers for other discs that should have been huge, and they were like like five or six thousand units sold. And these are these are big titles with big fan bases. And I was shocked to hear this. I was like, how is that possible? I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of fans for this particular franchise, and you're only selling like five or 6,000 units. Um, so I get it, you know, and it's a shame, but people mm. just stop. People, a lot of people got used to getting things for free. You know, a lot of people found it very easy to pirate. Yeah. Um, a lot of people wait for Amazon to sell things for, you know, five ninety nine, and it's just, this all takes a toll on how much money the studio can spend, you know, um, and that, and that unfortunately has, has kind of, you know, gutted the ultra big Magambo big set, you know, kind of, um, thing, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't afford that type of stuff anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, streaming and things like that have, have kind of affected that model as well. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, home media and uh you, you know uh obviously it's changing so quickly as well i mean you know we've 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 now got uhd everywhere in the shops and it doesn't seem like long ago that that blu-ray came out even though it was some years ago now but um you, you, you know i i guess i i don't know whether this has an effect on stuff like that but i'm sure i'm sure it must have something to do with the economics down the line you know as well um in fact, I, 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 on a similar subject, I, uh, I read an interview um, uh, regarding the that there was a a couple of years back there was a um, high definition uh, all singing or dancing release of the entire series of of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and um, you know it really was kind of a labor of love love project where they'd gone back to all the individual assets and um you know completely remastered it and um y y you know it was quite a painstaking process and uh apparently you, you know like you were saying that the, the cells weren't strong enough for them to justify doing it for the other star trek series like um you know deep space nine or voyager um and the problem is a lot of the assets uh in terms of the visual effects side of things um you know where they were finished for television um don't actually exist in a um hd type format they still uh exist in you know uh in a in a tv type format and they would have to literally go back to all the individual assets you know right back to the 35 mil negs and um you know the vista vision stuff and then all of the visuals that would have to be then redone uh you know in terms of the laser effects and stuff because they were they were just in standard definition um so you know that there is quite a you know people think oh yeah you can just remaster that and re-release re it but there is actually uh quite a lot involved with the with the various assets and um elements uh to do that if they're not already in high definition you know standard def like many things were uh yeah no that's true it's, and it's 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 a shame because so much great work was done right at the cusp of hd taking over um you know where 
certain departments uh, were up and running for that type of stuff uh, to do, to restore things or to you know up-res things or whatever, and um, they weren't because you know some people weren't sure about what the next step was going to be, and uh, and it wasn't until like literally like a year later when they realized oh everything's going to go HD, but it's too late. We already missed our opportunity, and they go back and do that again is going to cost you know like we're going to have to double the, the money we spent. So you know it was just it's. Bad timing, bad decision making, but not—it's not bad decision making made out of, um, you know, any kind of evil intent. It's just—it's just you know you weren't aware of what was coming around the, the the bend, you know, and that that's that always kind of affects things. I mean, in the case of Blade Runner, I mean, it kills me that we don't have dangerous days of deleted scenes in HD, but we were again right at that cusp of when we were when we were working on it. Um, Blu-ray still hadn't locked in as the preferred format for the next generation. It was kind of a war between Blu-ray and HD and DVD was still thriving. Standard up DVD was still thriving. So it was kind of a, a question mark as to what, what the next step was going to be. So that's why it was sort of like, well, let's maybe hedge our bets or whatever. Um, and in retrospect, I really wish we had just, you know, followed through, but, um, you know, it's hopefully one day there'll be an opportunity to get around to, to make those HD. Yes. Yeah important to save one's assets and uh i guess nobody ever knows what the future is going to hold you know like you know we didn't know that what was going to happen to la in a year from now <laughs> <laughs> just you guys saying that makes me think that um i know personally that at the moment my my own films are are only in hd and the assets are in hd and the you know there there's nothing higher than that so you know years down the road um you know i i don't know if these films will be available because you know whatever the 8k 16k you know tvs are are showing i you know <laughs> i don't think uh you know my films will sort of match up to that i mean at least films that have been shot on film can actually you know be scaled to these different formats at the moment just because of how um how rich film is how versatile it is but it does it does make me think there's going to be a whole lot of films that are going to be uh, sort of lost down the road because you know they were shot on today's uh, media but you know honestly i think um it's the age of the film that's more important than the format because i had a conversation weeks ago with a couple 20-somethings uh, about Lawrence of Arabia. I asked them if they'd ever seen it. Oh, right. And they, they hadn't even heard of it. So I, you know. Oh, oh no. Explained <laughs> <laughs> to them what it was and why it was important and, 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 you know, how David Lane, you know, spent so much time on that film basically, you know, chasing the weather. Mm. So, you know, they spent six months waiting for a sunset and whatever. I, you know, I was telling them those types of stories. And, um, and they showed zero interest in it. And I'm thinking, okay, that film you could see in like, you know, like 70 millimeter now, or, you know, they could do a beautiful 4K, you know, presentation of it. And it would be, I mean, it, you know, it would look timeless. It would be as beautiful today as it was then probably. And, and that's got nothing to do with the format. That's got to do with the, the perceived age of the film. I mean, even though the film is in glorious full color and has amazing epic scope to it, um, Granted, it's, you know, it's whatever, four hours long with an intermission, but 
um, it's, 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 it does not connect for all these really sad reasons. And, and as much as I've tried to get younger people that I know to see older movies, I'm talking about movies from like the eighties, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. You know, I mean, yeah. my fiance, <laughs> say had, of the Indiana Jones films, she had only seen kingdom of the crystal skull. Ooh. The longest. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What a shame. What a shame. <laughs> so I said, okay, well I have to at least show you Raiders. And I was waiting for a, like a retrospective screening and then, came up so i just showed it to her on my big screen at home i said okay well let's watch raiders and she loved it you know she really did um which is fortunate because i would have had to have dumped her if she didn't <laughs> but no that got me thinking it's like well it's just that how do you convince people to uh to try out you know older films and it kills me to have to say the raiders is an older film because for me it's like it came out yesterday but yeah yeah but, you know, now I'm like, okay, can I show her Temple of Doom in a few weeks? Can I, you know, get her the last few <laughs> You know, because you can't just power through these like I think we could. Mm. Um, you know, you have to kind of, like, tiptoe and say, please, can I just please show you this film from, like, my childhood that was so important to me. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the format is going to weigh as heavily as you, as you think. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's an issue, certainly, on, like, mm. on a, like, a real issue. But I think just, just in terms of getting people to even see your films... Um, it's going to be, I think, based more on what seems fresh and new and relevant versus what's good from whatever year it came out in, you know? Yeah, there's, there's so much out there, isn't there? This, this is, it's that old. Oh, dear. You know, I find that story about Lawrence of Arabia really sad. I mean, I could just imagine them watching it and saying, oh, come on, get across the desert already, you know? <laughs> 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 that beautiful shot, you know? <laughs> but... Uh, um, it is what it is. Keith, didn't you have a, a similar experience with um, the the kids you were teaching? Yeah, I mean, he, w yeah, back when I was teaching, I, you know, I did find it frustrating because um, I remember, you know, ver ver very indulgently on my part, I um, I did a thing where I did a bit of an experiment with the class about, um, you know, history of film and some of the stuff. And what, what I did was, um, we did a season where uh, we did a term essentially where we we studied psycho um, but my whole my whole framing thing for this was uh, we we played the original film at the beginning of the term and then we you know we discussed it across the term and we looked at filmmaking and and obviously the the marketing around it and how times had changed there and you know the whole thing about the toilets and you know all of that stuff we dealt with you know the different aspects but then at the end of the term i showed them the the gus van sant remake and it was a little bit of an experiment to see you know which one they preferred um and it was interesting because first of all they all found the original Psycho, Hitchcock Psycho, um, kind of boring. And I was like, really? And and they were like, oh, it's kind of long. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and all this. So so I was kind of obviously taken back uh, in disgust by that. Um, and then what I found really funny when when we watched the uh, the Gus Van Sant version was, again, it's perception after something's happened. All of these kids know Vince Vaughn as this kind of, you know, comedy goofball 
actor yeah and obviously that was that was earlier in his career when he you know he'd done swingers and whatever but um you, you know he didn't have the sort of uh history that he's had since so of course they all found you know the fact that he was in the film hilarious um and, and sort of couldn't take it seriously from 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 the start anyway but it was weird the the, the overall vote at the end of the term was was kind of 50 50 so um you know half the class preferred hitchcock's version obviously they all got an a <laughs> and uh, no, i'm kidding I, i'm kidding and um and and then the other half preferred you know gus van sant's version and it's like okay well fair enough but you know and a lot of them attributed that to the fact that it was in color and i said yeah well you know you have to understand psycho wasn't in black and white because color hadn't been invented you know uh, that was a choice and it was done for other reasons and you know and all this sort of thing so it was quite interesting to to discuss but i have to say yes i was kind of uh shocked (laughs) that, that that uh that you know these young people didn't didn't uh regard the film in the same way i i do and you know again that's that's life i mean bearing in mind that it was it was a, a classic old film when i first saw it so um but uh but yeah it's just it's just interesting how how times a change and how um you know how how audiences perceive things it's 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 yeah, very interesting. But anyway, sorry, I've gone off on a total tangent, which has <laughs> taken us way off from Blade Runner. So I, I, I apologise. That 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 one listener that wanted us to do this Blade Runner episode will be bloody hell. They've already talked about Psycho. Damn it! <laughs> well, you know, you can you can bring this all back to Blade Runner, that, you know, without talking about sequel. Um, you know, it 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 didn't. Really, I mean, even though you know a lot of film fans love Blade Runner and um, people our age and you know geeks all over the world love Blade Runner, I mean, it just goes to show that the box office performance of 2049 kind of revealed that that was not a mainstream, you know, uh, thing, a phenomenon. It was, it was. I think you know Blade Runner's time uh, was kind of white hot in like the, the, the 90s and then kind of culminating in 2007, but. Even then, it was sort of like uh, this kind of memory, you know, of this film being groundbreaking versus actually being vitally groundbreaking, you know, when it when it was, because um, obviously the film was groundbreaking. It inspired all kinds of, you know, films and televisions and comic books and video games and everything like that. Um, but thirty years later, um, you know, you have to ask yourself: besides the people that love the film, what are what are the kids today think? Because those kids grew up in a world where every future they ever saw in any format was inspired by Blade Runner. So it's like they get mm. to see a sequel to that film and, and they're sort of like, well, what else is new? You know, I've seen all this before. I've seen, you know, the big mega buildings and the flying cars and the, 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 the neon and the steam and the rain and all the moody atmosphere. I've seen that in a bajillion other things because they weren't there at the flashpoint when Blade Runner kind of wrote that visual language, you know, for the, for the pretty much the first time, mm. uh, or at least crystallized it in that way for the first time. So that's where you have to ask yourself, you know, do, would the kids today appreciate Blade Runner, especially with its kind of slow pace, which I love, you know, but do the kids want to sit through that? I don't know. Um, can they, can they, um, um, uh, you know, embrace the film to kind of like, uh, 
darker, more philosophical side. I mean, maybe they can, maybe some can, but I'm, I'm guessing most mainstream audiences, even even grownups probably would not connect the way we did back in the day. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what's, well, what's next? What's the next thing to get excited about? What's the next future that we haven't seen before? And um, when, I, when I interviewed uh, Mark Romanek, who was one of the, the filmmakers we, um, you know, like Guillermo del Toro and Frank Darabont and just we interviewed these other filmmakers who were inspired by Blade Runner, and I asked Mark Romanek, I said, you know, okay, we've seen the sterile, clean 2001 future, and we've seen the dark, dystopian Blade Runner future. What else is there? You know, because those are the, kind of the two extremes between light and dark. And he said, well, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't tell you, <laughs> because I would go make that movie, you know? Exactly. That would be the next thing, indeed. <laughs> so when you ask yourself, Thing that people can get excited about and say, okay, that's a future I've never seen before and get excited about for a modern audience, you know, that's a really tiny needle to thread, you know, um, really tiny because so much has been done and so many variations of what's been done has been done, you know, yes. and so many flavors of basically the same thing that you have to really step out of our existence as human beings to kind of figure out, okay, what else is there? But when you do that, you lose the connection to your audience, I feel, because suddenly you're, you're so off the grid and coming up with stuff that's just so wild um, that it might be awesome to see, but um, will it connect with you as a viewer? Will you have a shared experience that allow you to say, I, I understand this world, I like this world, or I'm engaged by this world, I want to see more, you know? So... I, I wonder, I, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm not suggesting at all that we're at kind of the end of human imagination, but I do wonder <laughs> what else is there when it comes to the future that that we, in 2018, actually understand. Because the, the, the future of 2019, back in 1982, even though it was, you know, so exotic and strange and alien, it still was grounded in um, things that we were starting to see and in the noir of older movies and the punk rock of the 80s. And it's just like, it was it was still grounded in stuff we knew. It was just a whole new combination of those ingredients. And I, and I just wonder, what is that next combination of ingredients that works as a credible, never-before-seen future, and yet we can connect to as humans? Like, that's that's the question. No, that's a... I, I, wish, I, wish, I wish I had the answer. That would be my... Uh my key to success i think most definitely um maybe not i mean as we just said about blade runner i mean it took about a decade for people to catch up with it to, to actually get used to that vision of the future it, it took the uh the blade runner influencing other directors to take that look on and you know so come the 90s when the director's cut came out it was people you know we're used to seeing that so they could get into it more i imagine mm -hmm. I, I mean i i would love to have been there when it, it, it first came out the cinema and just to see the audience reaction because i imagine for a lot of people it was like what the hell is this yeah yeah oh no I, I, absolutely i mean it's uh you, you, you know as you rightly said charles um you have got the sort of two two templates in 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 film science fiction you know history in terms of you know 2001 for the sort of uh you know sterile uh clean looking future and and you know 
Blade Runner for the the sort of dark and dirty <laughs> uh, vision of the future, and and definitely everything that sort of um, you, you know come since as 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 visually as as drawn on you, you know one of those two films to a certain extent um, in their aesthetic. And, and and obviously thematically, I mean, of course, science fiction had been, you know, exploring some of these possibilities in in literature and art for you know hundreds of years before before these films came along. Um, but uh, you, you, you know, you think of the um, the other films that have that have sort of dealt with with some of the thematics of this you know um i mean my old favorite that i always go to in terms of television is is of course you know um ron moore's vision of 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 battlestar galactica with the uh with the humanoid type uh cylons being very inspired by um by blade runner you know even down to the fact that they refer to them as skin jobs uh, as a slang in the in 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 the narrative and um you know more recently in terms of actually what's on television at the moment again even though it was worked from a uh, you know a Crichton uh film and novel back from the 70s but of course you know westworld um is is absolutely exploring those sort of um you know philosophical themes uh around you know humanity and um uh existence and uh you know um who has rights you know whether you're created biologically or artificially and you know all of that sort of stuff so you you know definitely those those themes are still there and um and and you know uh today's generation are getting those stories and engaging with those stories um which you know are still sort of timeless and universal but but like you absolutely said the the key is how is one gonna visually move from 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 those uh from those sort of templates and um yeah that 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 is indeed a very good question (laughs) so what's the answer Uh, well, if, if we knew, we wouldn't tell you. <laughs> if, 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 if we knew, we'd be making it. <laughs> We'd be filming it right now. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it is it is an interesting debate for sure. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is this is you know the question as to sort of why Blade Runner is 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 held in the regard that it is and um y- you know why why it's it's certainly inspired our generation um y- you know our generation of filmmakers uh y- you know it, it's it's very much on on the list that uh that people give of, of inspirational films um but uh yeah the question is what's that what's that next generation of filmmakers going to um going to draw from or are they just going to go back to this well, you know, another thing is um, that when Blade Runner came out, the the level of visual effects was, you know, it was getting better and better. It was still in the post-Star Wars explosion, technological explosion. But um, every shot, I don't, I don't know how many shots there are in Blade Runner, like visual effects shots there are in Blade Runner, but, you know, it can't be more than 40 or 50. I mean, there's very few visual, actual visual effects shots, um, if I recall correctly, versus something like Infinity War where almost every shot is a visual effect shot. <laughs> yeah. 
visual effects in every frame. Yeah. <laughs> Back then, it was sort of like an actual feat uh, to pull off that world convincingly and to pull off those shots uh, as beautifully as they did. Whereas now, don't get me wrong, it's still a ton of work and it takes, you know, thousands of people um, in workstations, you know, creating these shots. But um, I remember when I was watching Infinity War and I sat there and I was kind of just in, in awe of the scope of it, about how big the scale of it was to the point where I was like, it, it's not that it wasn't impressive. It was just, it was almost like just, I was numb to it, you know? And I, and I felt like I can't, I just can't even, I can't compute what, you know, uh, what I'm actually seeing um, technologically, you know, I'm, I'm into it. I'm into the story. I'm into the character. I get what's happening. I totally understand the geography within the frame. I get all that stuff and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it on a very kind of like popcorn level. But when I started thinking about the um, enormous amounts of work and then, you know, when you watch the end credits of Infinity War and you see like every visual effects company in the world pretty much worked on this movie, you realize, you know, that's like a, an army that you had to put together to create those shots. And, and then you, you, you say, okay, so I have, I have the ability to create magic, literally. It's like you are, you're basically like a god now. You can do whatever you want in a movie. There's no excuse. Whatever you can imagine, you can actually do. Versus back in 1981 and 82 when they were making Blade Runner, they couldn't. It was like they were limited. They had huge limitations that they had to try to, you know, punch through. Um, so that's the other dynamic. It's like, yeah, we're talking about what, what could this other future be or this other sort of new vision that, that we what we're hoping to imagine one day. But then on top of that, it's the achievement of it. It's like, okay, what's the big deal? It's like, yeah, you can, you can imagine it, but now it's so easy. Not, you know, again, the word easy is misused, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's so doable now with, with, with the, with the technology and the state of the art that we have that the stunt of it is kind of removed. You know what I'm saying? It's like back, back when Blade Runner came out, that was like a stunt. Like they, they pulled off stuff that you just didn't know how they did it. And it was just, you sat in awe of like simple things. And now you're seeing them actually literally destroying entire worlds and wiping out trillions of people. Spoiler. And, um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's, and it's just kind of, it's just, it just kind of happens in these, these, you know, visual effects companies that again, enormously talented armies of people, but it, 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 it's done on such a regular basis now that where's the surprise when it happens, when you have like this level of visual splendor and scope, it's just, I don't know. That's that. These are. It's like a totally different world we're in right now, and I'm just wondering what is the next time I, speaking for myself, I am going to get super excited about uh, a movement in filmmaking or um, a style or a technique um, or even a, a director's kind of signature. You know, um, I really feel like it, it hasn't really been since the '90s, and maybe like Tarantino and all the indie movies that came in came after him mm. that I felt inspired and. Ex- can't even comprehend you know did you lose me no 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 i mean i i mean i think i think what you're saying there is 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 absolutely the viewpoint of um watching it as a as a filmmaker i mean this is where us three talking here you know when when we watch movies we do watch them as filmmakers rather than just literally an audience an average audience person so um you, you, you know you're, you're right it, it, you do sort of think oh well they can do anything now and um you, you know the the limitations of films like blade runner and whatever you know around that time were in some re- respects what made them so special 
and 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 so good were those limitations but like you said now yes it takes armies of people to um to 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 make this happen but you can sort of uh you know do anything um and uh we had a little while ago we had on on the podcast john walsh who is involved with the um ray harryhausen uh foundation and uh, we were talking about whether or not there will be a, a renaissance of, um, you know, going back to old style visual effects in terms of, you, you know, stop motion and motion control and models and things of that nature, whether whether that it will actually come sort of full circle and do that and uh, and, and there'll be sort of a rise in that again, as as well as things being produced um via cg and i i don't know what do you have any thoughts on that charles uh no <laughs> <laughs> uh, well i just i just remembered a, a sort of a movement that kind of got me excited especially when i started out as a filmmaker was the dogma 95 um movement i mean the fact that you know these guys just came up with a set of rules and they you know, literally, literally said, "Well, you know, here you go, go make a film." You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, this big thing. It doesn't have to have special effects. It, you know, you don't need to have music playing in the back. You know, a, a score to it, and you know that. I remember that at the time that was kind of freeing. I mean, it was short-lived, uh, but. Um, I remember that time it was kind of you know it was it was just a way of saying well you know we might be sh shooting these on like video cameras and stuff but you know that's it's that's not what matters it just matters that you know we're telling a, a story and we're just stripping everything else away it's just about the acting and the story and I found that very invigorating um when I first started yeah I mean that was kind of in that uh you know that 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 almost like weird transitional period between you know analog and digital mm. wasn't it it was kind of uh it was very much you know a a, a sort of trend that um that, that that sort of spun out of that um you know the whole fact that we could we could record audio and video on a single device and all this sort of thing simultaneously and and um and and you could you know you could shoot for an hour and all that sort of thing it did it did kind of uh you, you know the tools if you like um change the way it was done and 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 weirdly it's kind of gone back full circle again because then the the dslr movement which we had you know in the last decade or whatever sort of brought things back to you know only been able to shoot for you know 10 minutes at a time and having to sync sound um separately and stuff like that so it is it is interesting that it sort of goes in circles and trends and definitely technology totally drives this stuff well you know it's interesting because the um the economics of everything have also you know changed since uh the original blade runner came out where there's kind of no more middle class of, of film production anymore. You know, I mean, everything is either over a hundred million or under a million, you know, and everything in between is far more rare than it used television. to be. <laughs> it's oh, television. Right. Yeah. Television. Television is like the, the last hope right now. But I, but I feel like, 
you know, a film like Blade Runner, uh, you couldn't make that today, like with that budget. Because um, I, I think adjusted for inflation, I could be wrong, but I feel like it's around 80 million, um, you know, versus like back then it costs whatever, 35 million. Um, but who makes an $80 million movie these days? Very few people, you know, and, and you look at 2049, which costs over 200, which is frankly, if you think about it, kind of insane, um, or a a sequel 30 years after a cult film that bombed in theaters. Um, you know, that, that was crazy to spend that kind of money. So, um, but you have, but I, but you kind of have to do it to compete in today's marketplace. So it's like either you make a, you know, a $20 million Blade Runner or you make a $200 million Blade Runner, but you can't really get away with a $90 million Blade Runner these days. And it's like, and that's the, I think that's the biggest problem of all is like, you're, you're having this huge divide between basically a Dogma 95 movie and a Marvel movie, mm. you know, and it's like, there's just not a lot in between. I mean, there are, but it's just, it's increasingly rare versus yes. when, back in the eighties, they were pretty much mostly middle-class movies, you know, in terms of uh, what they were spending. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I, mean, I think it was was a Terminator Two. I think was the first film that cost over a hundred million dollars to make, and people thought that was madness, and I would never get bigger than that. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah, I remember that. Mm. Yeah, it was uh, it was considered, which of course in itself was groundbreaking um, visually, but uh, um, yeah, it's 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 it, it is it is interesting how all of this evolves and changes. But I mean. Blade Runner itself, I mean, do you think, I mean, obviously, visually, um, Blade Runner was a was a real, um, you know, feat and success and, and you know, has, has obviously been an inspiration. Um, but do you think that part of the reason that Blade Runner still endures is because of, because of its thematics and, and what it's talking about and... Um, you, you, you know, you know those sort of questions. Do you, do you do you think that that's that's the reason that it's uh, you know not just because of its visuals and stuff, but because of what it's actually about? Um, I think that's an important reason. I don't think it's the reason. I don't think there is one reason why Blade Runner endures. I think it's uh, it's such a unique cocktail of of things and elements and flavors um, that. You know, I think it's almost impossible to replicate, no pun intended. I think it's kind of, uh, it's, it really is a, a, a one-off. And I, and, I, and I feel like a lot of Blade Runner's greatness comes from the limitations that they were under back then. Um, one of the big reasons why there's so much darkness and rain and steam and neon atmospherics is to basically hide the sets. Because if you look at photos of the sets, which are, you know, they're amazing sets, but if you look at them in broad daylight, they're not particularly convincing. They don't, they don't transport you to that future world that you want to be transported to. So that's why, you know, Ridley hid everything in the shadows. And that's what made it so mysterious and intriguing. It's like, what's around the next corner? What's, what's hiding in those shadows? What story is down the street that I want to find out more about? You know, I mean, that's kind of where the mystery of Blade Runner, I, I think, really developed. And, and then when you add on top of that the, the thematics and the philosophical angles of it, it just enriches it even more. So it's like you're not just dealing with fashion or spectacle. You're dealing with uh, a deeper meaning. Um, and, I, and I kind of think that's why the film has this very strange um, 
again, for lack of a better term, magic that works on me personally. And, um, and, uh, and you can't, you can't, I mean, as, as speaking for myself, as we saw with 2049, you can't copy that, you know? And that's why I think it was probably smart for Denis Villeneuve to go off in a slightly different direction that was more his own because, you know, he, I, don't, I don't think it was for him to try to copy uh, the, the, the DNA of Blade Run, or the original Blade Run, you know? And that's why, in some ways, it's, it, I think it's, a, you know, a very strong science fiction film, but it's not a, a great Blade Runner sequel to me. You know, it's like I, I can I can watch that film and say, wow, this is an incredibly well well made movie, well directed, you know, great performances. But is it a great Blade Runner sequel? That I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever know the answer to that question because I'm so biased. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, but but that's the thing is like I think I think you could potentially tap into the original DNA of Blade Runner. It's just you have to almost recreate all the limitations, all the conflict all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into the film back then, and that's a near impossible task. You might come up with a, a slightly different parallel version of it, but you're not going to ever tap into what created that first film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of lightning in a bottle. It's one of those kind of, um, you know, I know that's a phrase that's coined a lot, but it is kind of one of those, um, you know, special special mixtures of formulas of uh, that, that just sort of happened, everything happened right at the or, or not so right at the time and um and and you know that cocktail is what we came up with but i mean i think limitation is the key thing throughout because like you said there were the 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 physical on set sort of limitations uh when the shadows you know which obviously gave it that very film noir look and 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 stuff but um but also while i was watching it as i said i saw it at secret cinema and it shows how popular the film is still because it was absolutely packed um the 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 whole event and they did it really well but you know while i was watching the film and again thinking about the film and listening to the 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 dialogue and stuff and and you know the 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 whole the whole idea of you know the 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 replicants um even though you know that they've they've got this kind of you know, in enhanced strength and intelligence and eyesight, and you know all of these, all of these things. You know, they're limited to a four-year lifespan, and you just think, wow. You know, when when I think how how quick, you know, four years go fly by, <laughs> and you just sort of think, you know, I guess the older you get, the more you think about this as well. But you know, you just sort of think, shit. You know, um, if ever there's a limitation you know in a story thing that that's it and you you know you kind of you know you kind of feel for them and 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 that's what's you know that's what's so great about the film and when obviously you know uh the original literary work as as well as what ridley and 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 team did with it but um you, you, you know it is 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 those sort of questions that it raises and the fact that it is you, you, you know, like I said, as as a kid, I was used to films being much more sort of good versus evil, you know, cut and dry, black and white, beginning, middle and end sort of thing. And wasn't expecting what I got when I first saw Blade Runner and the fact that it is it is more open to interpretation and it's not necessarily, well, especially if you watch the director's cut, not necessarily... Um, conclusive and 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 you know just just sort of takes you takes you in this area and 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 i think you know it's it's to to recapture that 
and to do that again is 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 going to be very very tough hence why they've had to take it in 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 other directions and and you know separate it by 30 years etc um but yeah interesting yeah well i think it's probably the as as best a feature as a sequel that they could have got i i, I knew going into it they they would never outdo the original and uh you know it, it was i i enjoyed watching it but it 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 didn't hit me the same way as, as blade runner did and um i think taking out the four-year lifespan because I, I believe that the the replicants in that film don't have a short lifespan because it's never mentioned I mean also the fact that replicants are are now allowed onto earth when originally they were banned and hence why the, the Blade Runners uh, but did you guys ever read the 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 sequel book that came out I think in the 90s I haven't no I have to say I haven't there were, uh, there were like three of them, I believe, three sequel books. Uh, like one was called Replicant Night or something like that. I, I didn't know. I didn't read any of them. I, to me, it's like I I have enough on my plate. With, <laughs> with, <laughs> with Lawrence of Arabia, you have enough on your plate. But yeah. They're actually canon, you know, uh, to go sort of off canon is, I'm not, you know, hmm. I'm, not that, I'm not that young anymore. Well, I mean, this is the thing that's, that if, they had made a sequel, um, I'd say back in the 90s. Uh, this is probably how they would have gone. I mean, the story was that um, that Deckard comes back to L.A. Uh, because Rachel was dying. She's been put into some sort of hibernation capsule. And um, it's actually uh, Ty- Tyrell's uh, niece is now running the company. So he's having to deal with Rachel's double, and uh, she is more or less tearing the the company apart from within. And I remember it being it was all right. It wasn't you know it was slightly predictable. And I think the sort of spoiler, but twist ending was that um, the niece actually replaces Rachel at the end, and Deckard goes off with her, kind of knowing that this isn't Rachel. That he's actually, you know, that she's he's actually let Rachel die, which I thought was really, I don't know, I, I, that, it left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. But um, yeah, I do. I, I remember reading it ages ago and uh, thinking, well, I'm glad that they never went this way with the with any of the films or anything, or with the the sequel we did get. Nah, it's not canon. this is true this is true but it's that alternate alternate reality blade runner yeah yeah (laughs) yes well you know we haven't quite got the flying cars yet have we (laughs) no we haven't we've got got the drone cars now so Mm. you know we do yeah no you know and and obviously atari never ended up quite as big (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh you know but but no I, I i mean i i love i love the i love the world and i love the fact that it's um it is removed from our world but at the same time similar and uh yeah i just i just think it's um i think it's really exciting and uh 
And I absolutely love the final cut. I, I just think that that's, you know, perfect. Because as I said, it, it, it's fixed those niggly little continuity errors and, and stuff. And it's expanded on, you know, um, some of the skyline and stuff. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, it, it, it just, it looked fantastic. Trust me. And they did a really good thing. Uh, Secret Cinema did a, you know, that they, they have some scenes which, um, which they've got sort of uh, live action reenactments in with the film. And, um, you know, they, they did it really well. They did it really well. I was I was impressed. I was impressed. All it did, it made me really regret that um, I did the Star Wars one was my first ever one. Mm-hmm. But the year before, the year before that, they did um, Back to the Future. Oh right, they rec- yes. They recreated Hill Valley in the fifties, nineteen fifties, and I just and I just thought to myself, oh my god, I so wish I'd bloody gone to that, but I didn't. But uh, there you go. I went to the Back to the Future one. Oh, did you? Oh, I'm so jealous that 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 uh, that I'd have loved to have done that. I mean, there was something special about Star Wars being the first one for me, because as we've already covered in other podcasts, Star Wars was the first for lots of things for me. But um, uh, yeah, I kind of um, I would have loved to have done the Back to the Future one. I'm intrigued to know what they're going to do next. But uh, they certainly did do a good job of um of recreating the uh, the world of Blade Runner and uh, immersing you in it, so um, that that was a lot of fun. You know, maybe this is the next thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe maybe this is the future. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's um, I don't know. If, have you guys tried out the uh, Secrets of the Empire uh, VR experience? Do you have do you have that over there? We do. I not well. I haven't tried it. Have you tried it, Keith? No, it's it's actually one of those things on my list of, of, of things I want to do for sure, but I uh, haven't tried it yet, no. I highly, highly recommend it. it. It really, you know, I was very sort of like snobbish about VR, and I was sort of like, eh, I'm, you know, I'm good. I don't need to go do that. And I got sucked into doing it, and um, the Secret to the Empire VR experience was just phenomenal. And it, it's completely changed my mind about next-level virtual reality and what it could be um, because there's a, there's a moment in it when you, it's like you and three friends, you're basically rebels who put on uh, stormtrooper costumes, uniforms to infiltrate uh, an Imperial base. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so you got, you're, you know, you're wearing like a, in, in, in the real world, you're wearing this vest and you have your, your VR helmet on and the vest has little, little sensors that'll, you know, pop if you get hit by a blaster bolt or whatever. But you're, you're in this room that's in, in the VR space. You're basically like an elevator or, or a cargo ship. I can't remember how it begins, but you're basically being transported to this base. And there comes a moment where you walk through the door, but you literally walk through the door. It's not like you're on rails and you're standing there the whole time and it's being, you're, you know, it's taking you through doors. You are physically walking through doors. And when I had that first experience of walking through a door and like onto a platform and then onto another platform and then having to, you know, shoot other stormtroopers and things like that, that's when I realized, oh, this is so much more fun because, you know, you are fully, you are fully in this world, you know? So I think with, if Blade Runner could, could do something like that, where it's not you sitting in a spinner, you know, uh, like they had at Comic-Con um, last year, was it last year? Um, that it, it allows you to take your time and just do your thing, which is what, for me, Blade Runner, what I love about Blade Runner's atmosphere and the world is just, it's just kind of just 
bluesy kind of melancholy kind of just very mysterious and and just strange world that you just want to check out at your own pace you know you don't want to be tied to a story of oh i got to figure out who the replicant is so i'm going to go scan this guy's you know eye or i'm going to give him a void conf test or whatever you just want to wander you know and that's kind of what i hope one day is they create a blade runner vr experience where you can just wander but like physically like you're you're in VR, but you're walking through spaces, you know, and you can kind of take your time. Um, that to me would be when you say what's next, you know, the secret cinema thing is great. It's, it's awesome and so much fun, but um, you're still sort of like at the whim of other people that are there uh, who may or may not be as faithful to the experience as you are, or, you know, people who are basically uh, pretending to be uh, Deckard or Leon or Pris or whatever and they're basically cosplayers, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I want, I want a, a, like a virtual space where I can just take my time and wander. Um, and there's this, there's this guy. Um, his name's uh, Quinn. He, um, I don't know if you saw this VR of Deckard's apartment that he created. Um, I don't have the link uh, in front of me. Maybe I can find it really quick. But <laughs> you guys have to check that out because it is, um, it's phenomenal. Uh, it is such a faithful recreation of uh of Deckard's apartment uh Quentin Lengele I think he pronounces his name like that maybe um but he's on Twitter and um he you know he got shut down actually I think it was because it was so good um you know they got like a copyright uh, cease and desist on it but uh. but you guys have to check it out because it's, it's it, all it is it's Deckard's apartment but you can walk anywhere you can go out to the balcony and see the city just like Deckard does in his robe in the movie um and I think for true Blade Runner fanatics, like that's kind of the thing, you know, it's not a mission. It's not uh, shooting replicants. It's not, you know, flying your spinner and, you know, dodging, you know, refinery towers or whatever it is. It's, it really is about just living in that world. Um, so hopefully one day it'll get there. And maybe that's the next thing. You know, wow. maybe it's, it's the experience. It's the experience. I love it. Um, I've got to ask with the Star Wars uh, thing that you're in, um, presuming you could see a thing in that helmet anyway, um, when you look down, did you... Uh, so when you look down at like your arms and your body and stuff, you totally see all the Stormtrooper armor and stuff, yeah? Oh, man. <laughs> we're go we're Simon, we're going. We're fucking going, right? <laughs> okay. I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you do there's all kind of easter eggs so i would say feel free to touch anything like if you see you know uh k2so talking to you go go touch him and maybe he'll react i don't know we'll see. Oh, okay <laughs> but, it's like, but the best thing is like, it's 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 a really beautifully designed i mean if it's if if the one there is like the one that was that i did in, in la and in, in um it's just so well done with, with the details of it and um and I didn't want to leave. I wanted to go back right into it. And, it, and it's also, you know, it's, it's, it, there's heat, there's fumes, there's all this atmospheric stuff that you feel, you know. So, um, yeah, it's really well, incredibly well done. And, and I guess uh, a new alien VR experience just opened up in L.A., so I'm going to be out in oh, L.A. wow. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, by the way, uh, you didn't end up in a trash compactor, did you? No. Ah, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing but you're right i mean maybe that maybe that will be the next thing i mean um you know uh that, that they've always been trying to sort of get these these 
um, you know, secret cinema is kind of an evolution of what they did, you know, a couple of decades back or whenever it was with the uh, the whole Terminator 2 3D thing, Battle Across Time, you know, where that was, they tried to make that, you know, a, a 3D movie with live action stuff and sort of immersing you in it. And, you know, now they've done Secret Cinema, which is, you know, immersing the entire public in that world. But like you said, the the next evolution, I think VR is going to be big. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe that'll be the next thing. And, uh, you know, we, we talked on a large podcast where you may, you may end up in, in hollow suites or something, holodecks at, at some point in the future. Who knows? <laughs> hopefully not, you know, hopefully before the 24th century, maybe. You know? <laughs> well, I think that's the way it's going. I think it's the the challenge is is how to tell stories within that without it feeling like you're uh, on rails, you know. That's yes. that's the challenge. So it'll be Ready Player One <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yes. Cool. I don't I don't know if I'd want to live in that world as much as I'd like to, I'd like to visit it, but I mean, if you're you know in VR space. 90% of your life. Uh, I mean, you know, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you eat? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, it has, it has all sorts of, um, social issues around it, doesn't it? Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and the economy and all, all sorts of, all sorts of things, but, um, you know, <laughs> Oh Yeah. A whole nother podcast. I was just thinking yeah. that maybe the VR suits are, are like the stilt suits from June. <laughs> oh, there you go. See, that, that would be perfect because if you did a Dune VR experience, you could just wear, wear the still suit and be doing Dune. Dude, so it's yeah. kind of like, it's the perfect, it's the win-win. Double whammy. Double whammy. Exactly. As long as, long, as long as it's not like the lawnmower man, we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 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 see we're, we're hitting all the highs and lows of of movie references today so yes. uh yeah <laughs> cool okay well i mean any obviously this is it's, it's a massive topic that we could uh you know we've just probably scratched the surface of but any and I know Charles, you, you've you've talked about Blade Runner so much that <laughs> you're probably tired of it. But uh, any 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 other things anybody wants to add? You know, I, I will just say, you know, earlier you you mentioned the uh, you saw the director's cut in '92, and that the director's cut kind of you know fixed some some problems. But I always have to remind people there there are about or maybe even over a hundred picture changes in the final cut versus the director's cut. Yes. And I always feel like I need to point that out because people say, Oh, they just, you know, they just fixed some shots and they just tweaked it. It's like, that was a multi-year restoration. Oh no, I, I, I didn't mean to make it sound trivial. Sorry. That wasn't my intention. No, no, no. <laughs> I did that, but I, that's always something I, I feel I need to clarify whenever I see someone online or on Twitter, just kind of say, Oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I was like, well, actually it is. And we did, Tons of tiny, like I actually, when we um, we were wrapping up on the final cut, um, I'm not going to mention the name, but there was a, a fan site that you know they they wanted to talk to me about it. And I said, well, you know, if you want, I'll actually put together 
a comprehensive list of every single change we made for the final cut. And they're like, oh, no, we don't want that. We don't think anyone wants to see that. And so I, I, I never did it, you know, because uh, there was no interest. And frankly, again, it's like, you know, you don't, you don't have time to do things that aren't going to be used. So um, now I kind of regret it. So now I'd have to like go through and watch the movie again and maybe, you know, make a whole new list of it. But I mean, there's a ton of changes in the final cut and that uh, in a perfect world, you won't even notice, you know, I mean, Blade Runner fanatics would notice it, uh, would notice all of them. I mean, obviously there's, 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 there's incredibly obvious ones like, you know, how we fixed Zora and the dove flying in the sky, and, you know, about. And gaff size and stuff like that. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't touch gaff size, actually. That's, that's one thing. Like, there are a couple of things we deliberately didn't touch because we thought that's a, slip, a slippery slope and, you know, we, we, we could just go on and on forever. But I would say, you know, the final cut is um, extremely close to, I think, what anyone could reasonably call a perfect version of the film. There's still, there's two things, which I'm not going to say what they are, but there's two things I still like to fix. But, um, you know, that's that's for another generation uh, and another format, you know, many years from now. But um, uh, anyway, so it's like, I think the final cut is, uh, I, I mean, I'm glad that people seem to like it. I mean, there are, there are, you know, it has its dissenters. It has, there are people who prefer the theatrical cut because they like the, the hard-boiled, you know, narration. Um, and they, uh, they prefer the more naturalistic uh, color correction and, you know, things like that. And again, that's why they're all in the, in the box set. So you can enjoy whichever version you want. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I do actually, when I watch the final cut, I do kind of miss some of the continuity errors and, uh, you know, obvious stunt people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it, it's still, the, that's the thing though, it's, as you say, you've, you've, you've got the director's cut version, you've got the theatrical cut and you've got the final cut. So you, there's a, a version for everybody and, uh, you know, but it's still the same film. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how little Joanna Casti had changed in that 25 years, wasn't it? You know, um, that's uh, that's quite interesting to watch on the uh, on the documentary, and um, and uh, also the the painstaking thing with uh, you know the lips and uh, Harrison Ford's son and all that sort of stuff. That's that's really yeah amazing. There, yeah, you know, no, I. I I, I realized there was a, a, a shitload of work that went into this and, um, you know, it, it does look fantastic. So, um, yeah, no, a, a, absolutely. I, I wasn't meaning to say it was just the director's cut with a, with a few fixes. <laughs> that was, <laughs> but, um, no, it's, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. I was totally on to dish you, Charles. What can I say? But, uh, no, it's, it, it, it's, 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 uh, it really is fantastic and and it is great that all the versions are there intact so you can sort of choose whichever one you know you want as your version you know we almost went one step further i proposed um i think i called it custom cutter was was the uh the, the phrase where you could create your own edit of blade runner because on you know on the disc that has the archival versions which has the theatrical cut the international cut and the director's cut you know those three versions fit on one disc through seamless branching yes and so what i was gonna propose and I, and I did propose it and i actually kind of designed what the menu would look like would be um almost like a a, a series of switches of like toggles where you would say yes to voiceover but no to unicorn and yes to happy ending but no to this <laughs> and you could actually tailor 
the cut of the film based on you know on the major differences between the different versions. Um, because there are some people who say, I wish I had the, the voiceover, but not the stupid happy ending, you know? Mm. <laughs> uh, so again, I was doing my best to give everybody what they wanted, but it just seemed a little too, um, at the time, a little too advanced in terms of authoring. And we didn't want to have any glitches in the disc because already, you know, seamlessly branching three movies together on one disc is already a, a feat. So yes. add that extra bit of, uh, complexity might've been a disaster. But you know, maybe again, maybe someday but, they'll, they'll do something like that. There you go. There's the next. The, there's the next one. It's the the hybrid cut. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the choose your own adventure cut. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, this this philosophically goes against almost everything I believe in, and in terms of the filmmakers' control over their movie. Uh, yes. But but you know again if the if the director is okay with it then I guess it's it's you know why not try it out but uh, I would never want anyone to do that to my movie so therefore <laughs> you know I didn't, I didn't work too hard. On it. I remember in the eighties they did a, a the BBC actually did a um, a series where people actually voted on what was going to happen next and. Uh, as they never did it again, I imagine it was it, it. It wasn't much of a success, but I do remember it was all like you know you, you phoned in and they they it was like a they must have done because I'm I'm just trying to remember this off the top of my head, but I think they must have had some options. It couldn't have been like people call up and say, "Well, why doesn't he just run off then?" or you know, crazy stuff like that. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a thing called Murder in Space or something uh, where there was more than one ending and you could kind of choose which it was. And I can't, I can't for the life of me really remember much about it. So obviously didn't, didn't make much of an impression, (laughs) but uh, I seem to remember something like that at one point, but uh, I don't know. Hmm. Yes. I'll have to uh, look into that. uh, (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure there was something like that back in the day. You know that they we're always experimenting with 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 this different way of storytelling and different way of uh, representing and presenting it. It's uh, yeah, interesting. It's, um, <laughs> who knows what's next? Yeah, I just one quick question: Does anybody know if there are any fan edits out there of Blade Runner? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, oh, okay, there's one. I think it's called the White Dragon cut, and I think it includes. Um, all the deleted scenes um, in it. Um, basically, anything that's you know that didn't make the final cut, I think it tries to restore all that stuff. Um, and, it, and it takes some liberties with transitions and visual effects and you know way like you know certain moments that were never fully finished. It uh, I think it tries to cobble together with uh, its own new shots and things. But I've not I've not seen it because frankly I feel like. You know, I've seen Blade so many times, and yeah. so many times. And I worked on it for so long in terms of the the restoration and the and the special features that uh, I'm good. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's some amazing thing. I've got to see how I'll go see it. But if it's just putting everything back in, it's like I'm. I can I can imagine that pretty well. Yeah, and I, I do have to say, probably the most fun I had in terms of all the special features was putting together those deleted scenes like as a, a little mini movie, a 47-minute kind of like Blade Runner 5.5. 
version of the film um, because it was uh, it was really intoxicating to have access to the dailies and mm. to cut it together in our own way because there was, with the exception of maybe four of the deleted scenes, uh, it was all raw footage that had no you know rough cut or work print or any guide to go off of other than you know we looked at the footage, we tried to figure out what made sense, and then we cut it together in the best possible way. And then on top of that. The extra bonus of having um, discovered the original um, voiceover recording sessions with Harrison Ford that had entirely different dialogue than what was in the theatrical cut. So we had all of this completely unheard Harrison Ford narration, and we didn't originally know, you know how to house that within the, the disc. And then I thought, well, why don't we, in addition to the deleted scenes we know we have, why don't we go into the dailies, pull alternate takes and other angles that we've not seen before and stitch together a version of the film that's or the, or the deleted scenes rather that support this unheard uh, VO. And that was an enormous amount of fun to do that. Like that was literally going into, into these amazing dailies and, uh, and cutting together your own version. That was, uh, that's probably the most fun and satisfying experience I've ever had doing this behind the scenes stuff. No, that's great. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Excellent. <laughs> ah well <laughs> anything else no. uh, <laughs> I think that's it <laughs> we we really we really could uh, you know be here all night but uh, we can't do that so I, I hope w whatever listener that was um, is, is happy with our sort of rather impromptu little discussion mm. and tour of, of Blade Runner and other aspects of cinema. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and if they do like it, maybe they could go onto iTunes and give us a review. That would be nice. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you know, Charles, thank you as always for coming and joining us uh, on these things. We always find what you've got to say very interesting and insightful and uh yeah, really appreciate you being part of it. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. And if you ever do another uh, podcast about The Last Jedi, you have to include me in it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not another Last Jedi podcast. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, I actually do think there will probably be, be more to come but, yeah. at some point. Mm, yes. Yes. I'm, st I'm still... I'm still uh, I'm still grappling with the Last Jedi. Simon, Simon very kindly bought me the Blu-ray for my uh, birthday recently, and um, I I watched the uh, the feature-length documentary on that one, um, which I found very interesting. I've I've yet to watch the film with uh, commentary, which which I will do, um, but I did check out all the deleted scenes, and um, uh, in my opinion, it was a mistake not to have the uh, Luke's reaction to um, Han, you know, the news about Han not being in the film. I think that was a mistake, but that's that's my opinion. There you go. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast, maybe <laughs> with maybe with Charles sometime in the future. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm a big Last Jedi defender, so I will take you on if there's another. Right. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be. Yes. <laughs> So, Keith, uh, where can people find your work? Okay, well, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, which is E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name, 
Uh, there are short films there that I've uh, written, produced, and directed, um, all with no budget, by the way. And <laughs> if you put my name into IMDb, you can see projects that I've, uh, or a selection of projects that I've done, um, both past and upcoming. And as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and all good podcast providers. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. It all helps. So um, thank you for uh, listening to the podcast. And uh, and hopefully you'll join us again for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, which might be on The Last Jedi. Who knows? <laughs> I hope so. Indeed. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark nearly ten hours a game. All those moments. Time like tears.